Welcome to the Inspired Wild Podcast. I'm Trevin Stoltzfus, and I am joined by my good buddy, Fred from Wasp Archery. Fred, good to see you. Good to talk to you, at least. We're on Skype, so I can't actually see you because I don't like to talk on Skype where I'm watching somebody else or they're watching me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, as far as as far as you know, I might be uh, in my underwear sitting on a folding chair. You don't know. How do you know I'm not? Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. I wanted to talk to you, Fred, because you and I have had this conversation a couple times at ATA and then over the phone where we're getting these messages of, hey, I've got this, you know, this Wasp uh, drone or I'm, I've got, uh, you know, the new Havilon HV or, or something. And they're saying, you know what, and, and my field points are hitting here and my broadhead, you know, that my broadheads are hitting here. And unfortunately, a lot of times when we get those messages, whether it's on IG or Facebook or maybe even email, you know, it's it's too much to go into in a short little uh, type written message. And and on the flip side of that, Fred, there's a lot of information we need to know about their setup in order to help people tune their broadhead. So so this whole conversation we're having now is really I wanted to have you and I kick ideas back and forth. I'm sure I'll learn something from you and, and maybe I'll uh, uh, maybe I'll even treat, teach you a new trick. Probably not. Probably just make you laugh. Um, <laughs> but uh, I wanted to kick around some ideas that some but he could maybe reference his podcast later on and say, hey, okay, I'm having problems with the broadhead. Let's look at, you know, listen to this podcast. And it could be a tutorial for even later and hopefully a little bit entertainment and informational as somebody's driving to work or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, I, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I, I get the same calls and the emails here. Uh, typically, I'll pull everything off the wasparchery.com website. Um, that's technical in nature. I, you know, I, I let the owners handle all the, the financial stuff and uh, and paying the bills and all that. And I, I try to handle the uh, the technical questions and uh, as well as manage the inventory and so forth uh, for Wasp Archery. Um, but you're you're exactly right. I, I get these calls and emails all the time. Uh, the good news is every single one of them can be corrected. Whatever whatever the whatever the shooter's problem is, uh, we can correct it. Um, and it's just a matter of, of uh, you know, them taking the time and, and being willing to to put the practice in. Um, right. So, yeah, right. I'm, I'm, I'm with you all the way. You know, and, and before we get started, though, I want to real, really briefly take a step and let's let's lay the foundation of Wasp Archery. Now, you guys are not a new company. No. Um, Wasp has been around since, am I 71? Am I correct in saying 71? That's correct. 1971. You know why I remember that? Probably the year you were born. Yep. <laughs> That's exactly. okay. I, I, was, I was getting ready to graduate high school, so. Yeah, you're just a little bit older than me. Yes, it's a little bit. Well, Fred, tell us, talk me through uh, the history of WASP. So, I, briefly, a, a gentleman named Richard Moleski, um, who's, who, who, who was well-known, certainly by, by old-timers like me, um, in the archery industry, because he, he's credited with... Um, coming up with the first commercially available uh, changeable blade uh, broadhead. Um, and the guys I remember is called the cam lock. Believe it or not, I still get calls from guys that say, oh man, I wish I had my cam locks. Um, and in general, in 1971, he, he took a Schick 
razor blade, chick injector razor blade to shave your face with, um, and found a way to wind it onto a little spring around a ferrule um, and, and make a broadhead that, that had changeable blades. They had no vents in the blades. Um, I've never actually shot one. We have a couple left, you know, that are that are like uh, archived, if you will, <laughs> in our library. Um, but guys swear by them. They say they were the sharpest thing ever. And you can imagine they, they would be. They weren't certainly not going to uh, be something that would hold an edge for long. And I can't imagine they held up very good through bone. But regardless, Richard started in 71. Um, the guy passed away, which is what made the company uh, available uh, to the Weaver family. Um, guy and Mickey Weaver, Matt Weaver, Zach Weaver, myself, we kind of, we kind of run it, you know, with a little help from some, uh, some other guys, uh, from the, from the, uh, actually from the track optics business. Um, but anyway, um, he, he continued to improve upon that design. It started out with just like a conical steel tip on it. Um, then he, he actually hand built machinery in his, in the, in the, in the factory, which, which, which now the Weaver's own in, in Plymouth, Connecticut. Uh, to come up with a way to grind and hone stainless steel after it's been hardened, um, and that's that's a tricky part. We can we can come to later. Um, anybody can make a trocar tip, and anybody can harden stainless steel, but it's very very difficult to make a trocar hardened stainless steel tip with the edges as as fine as as Wasp gets them to be. Um, somewhere in the mid '90s. Um, he came out early nineties. Actually, he came out with the, um, the jackhammer, which is pretty well known all over the place. It's, it was, a, it was a mechanical head and I've been told was the first commercially available, uh, mechanical broadhead as well. Uh, it's a front deployed design, um, which, which has held up the test of time. Um, and then he incorporated that hardened stainless steel tip, uh, onto all of his heads, if you will. He called it SST or stainless smart tip. And a lot of guys still refer to it as the boss SST or the hammer SST. Uh, but, but in reality, the stainless smart tip um, is virtually on every head we have except for one or two. Um, and that has been really the wasp secret to success because the way the, the tip is designed and the way the ferrule um, is built we don't screw the tip on. We don't lose use little pins or screws or anything like that. The tip is pressed on uh, under pretty pretty high uh, uh, pressure, and it's pressed on in perfect alignment with the blades. And we know from our testing and, and everything we we do to you know compare our broadheads with other broadheads that that is, that is a key ingredient to to having tremendous penetration, especially when you hit bone. If you hit between ribs, you and I both know that it doesn't really matter how sharp it is or how pointed it is. If you get between ribs on, on a white-tailed deer, you're going to get a pass-through and you're going to get a dead deer. Um, it's it's when you when you slam into the you know a moose rib or the shoulder of a whitetail um, that you really need something. And that 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 hardened stainless steel trocar tends to I, I refer to it as like a, like like throwing an axe at a, at a piece of oak wood. You know, the axe blade is only four inches wide, but it splits the whole way across. Um, and we find that we get much better penetration uh, due to that tip and, and blade alignment. So all the improvements um, have been more recent than that. He really you know, just kept building the business uh, throughout the early 90s and, and into 2000. Um, and at one point, I mean, th there were very, very few broadheads on the market. When I started shooting, I'm, I'm going to tell you when that was. That was a long time ago. Um, but there was, there was only really, I think, like three broadhead choices um, that I can remember, at least three that were available to me. 
Um, and Wasp was the only one that me, my buddies, everybody shot. You know, it was, uh, we, we tried some. Of, back in those days, there was a, a broadhead called Savora. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Um, it, it, was, it was a solid aluminum ferrule, including the tip. So literally every time you shot it at anything but a hay bale, the, the tip bent. <laughs> so it was, it was, it was pretty obvious that the wasp tip uh, had a distinct advantage over over everything else. So I mean that that's kind of the back a, a quick and dirty history of it. Um, it's now now correct me if I'm wrong, but d- d- wasp uh, has been American made primarily uh, and something you guys I think are proud of um, and. Don't the weavers have like that original piece of equipment that guy built? Absolutely, they do. Um, let me ask your first question. We're absolutely very proud of it, um, and I'm I'm not I'm 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 sad to say I don't know how much longer all of that can continue. What we make in house um, is will obviously still be American made. Um, we've we've told everyone we've we've not tried to hide any of it. I mean the the, the new HV is not our our tie in with Havilon. Um, because of you know their relationship with their blade manufacturer and so forth, it's 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 not the blades are not made in the USA, um, but everything we can you know the boss the hammer the jackhammer the bullet uh, the drones all that was is still made in the USA. The problem is now is blades. Um, the the best blade manufacturers in the country, in fact, the only blade manufacturers in the country, have now all outsourced their production. And I'm right. having a real hard time finding uh, anybody that, that can make blades or, or will make blades in the USA because um, it's it's just become cost prohibitive. Um, so we have, we have a pretty good stockpile of blades right now. Um, we're good for a couple of years yet, for sure, uh, of being made in the USA. And I continue to search for maybe somebody's listening to this and say, hey, wait a minute, I make blades. I'm going to give Fred a call. So, uh, or, you know, email me or something like that. I'd, I'd love to talk to somebody that, that truly has uh, made in the USA blades. That's become the difficult part. Well, and, and I'm a pretty, as you probably know, pretty straight shooter when it comes to uh, some of the, well, here, here's a good example. How, a guy will spend, he will say, I w- I want to buy this because it's made in the USA until it's a nickel more. Yeah, you're perfect. And I hate to say that because, but I've been in this industry long enough to know that we want to, we love the idea, we love the stickers made in the USA and this and that, but we don't really preach that from our pocketbook. Um, and so in order for a company, Wasp's main objective is 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 a business it's a business that needs to be profitable or else uh, it, it's an expensive hobby and um, the weavers are good business people they own other companies they're not in the business of making broadheads to 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 break even i mean that's that's the beautiful thing of the capital system that we have in the united states and people need to realize that there is a situation where if we can maintain the strict standards of quality, sharpness, and all these things that Wasp has been known for for years, and yet make it to where it you can maintain that pricing structure people are uh, used to that's affordable to people, um, and 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 the profit margins are there. Then um, 
if it's made in Timbuktu or uh, Japan or China or Mexico. Uh, a lot of people want to say, well, I'll buy it if it's made in the USA. The problem is the people that will really do that, they might say it, but the people that really do that, WASP can't stay in business. Yeah, um, it's becoming more and more difficult, as you said. And I, and I honestly, you know, we, we control the quality. You know, everything that comes back, we, we have we have tests that we run blades right. through that we run ferrules through. I mean, I, if, for instance, if, uh, if blades will come even even from a U.S. supplier, they'll come in packs of 750 or a thousand. Uh, we open every single pack, um, grab two or three blades out. I put it into a fixture that was that was built again by by, by Richard Bolesky um, that just think of it as a, a sort of a vice that moves um, and we, we bend it to a 45 degree angle. Um, because it needs it needs to be able to do that. If we try to bend it to a 45 and it snaps for any reason, the whole lot, the whole lot goes back. We don't want it. Well, and I, I can speak from experience because I did some testing for you, and we got some blades that were a little bit too uh, – what's the verbiage I'm looking for? Uh, the hard. temper – yeah, the temper was, was too hard. I remember and, well. Right, and we snapped some blades off, and the first thing you told me was that batch, they weren't tempered correctly. So the very next batch I got, I I had no issues. So, But that was also in the— you got those, if you recall, you got those, they were test blades, Mm -hmm. um, so they weren't the actual production mode. Right, 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 And, and I totally understood that. Um, you know, again, but, uh, the, I, it just warms my heart just knowing that there is the quality control in place. So when you're purchasing a, a, a pack of, of wasp heads, um, you know that the testing goes in there. And I, and I don't want to make this a wasp, um, you know, uh, don't buy one, but now you can get two. I mean, I don't want to make it into an infomercial about wasps. I just wanted to lay the platform because I think people don't realize how long wasp has been around and the cool thing about it is the emails that I know you get and I even get about I've been shooting this wasp broadhead for 25 years. You know, you got customer base. You have really good um, customer bases like that where there's a heritage built into a brand and that brand is wasp archery. Yep, exactly. I mean, we could listen, we could do 100 pro, uh, podcasts or, or, or discussions about um, the evolution of broadheads and what's, I mean, right now we're, we're at a critical crossroad right now, uh, because of cross bows. Um, even, even vertical bows are faster now than they've ever been, but cross bows, um, are so fast. And you and I both know we're going to come back from ATA show this year and somebody will, will debut a 500 foot per second crossbow. Oh, no doubt. Um, I'll be disappointed if they don't. Um, and that, that is, I mean, we're, we're getting to be, you know, a quarter of the speed of a bullet, um, and like I said, I don't want to get off on that tangent either, but, you know, a hundred grain broadhead used to be the Holy Grail when bows barely shot 200 feet per second back, right. back in my day. Um, and now we're, you know, we're 300 with a vertical bow easily, um, you know, 400, 450. And, and like I said, 500 will soon be with crossbows and the evolution of the broadhead. There's not a lot you can do material wise or structure wise, strength wise, uh, to, to make it any stronger than it already is and and stay at 100 grains. Right. You're right. willing to yep. go to 125, 150, or even greater. Yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff we can do. Right. Uh, but to stay at 100 grains, which everybody wants to do, 
um, it's it's getting tougher and tougher to to, uh, to make a broadhead that's that can withstand that sort of thing. Anybody, yeah. you know, I'll speak for the whole industry because we we are you and I both have friends in this industry, and you know, we you're right, we're we're competitors, but we see each other at shows and you know, high five and say hi and all that kind of stuff. And um, but so we 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 have these little discussions, and we we know we all we're all facing uh, the same dilemma that. Uh, for years and years and years, we chased speed. Um, and now that we've achieved it, it's like, oh, yeah, everything else has to catch up. Right. Well, I, and and um, I want to make it very clear that I am not a crossbow an aficionado. I have killed animals with crossbow. I actually tore my shoulder up one year that I thought I was going to have to not. I wasn't going to be able to hunt at all. And my shoulder was torn up so bad and they couldn't do surgery for eight months because I had some so much nerve damage. But uh, I shot a crossbow and um, but I, but when I'm talking about uh, broadheads and and tuning arrow combo broadhead, you know, uh, setups to bows, I'm strictly speaking about compound bows because that's about where my knowledge and my experience stops. And then I'll let you take over with the crossbow stuff. Um, but that's what I want to concentrate on in this. Um right. Let's jump right in this because I just did a video. I have not uh, finished editing it, but we we did a video for Wasp, um, kind of you and me talking and at the request, I think, of of everybody about the issue of tuning broadheads. And I started that video out, and I'm going to just kind of talk through it, and then you jump in if you see something you can add to it, or even maybe if if I'm – emphasizing something incorrectly i want you to kind of to to make sure that i'm i'm saying the right things because i'm learning a ton and i i have been learning a ton since the you know since i first started shooting archery uh and 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 as the fads and i am going to call them fads the fads in the industry i've seen them go from um that 230 240 feet per second now every the magic number was 300 now it's 350 uh as far as feet per second on bows and um i'm happy to announce that i do see a pushback on that and we'll get into the into that in a second with heavier arrow setups so what i started this video out fred is i kind of started it out. i said let's first talk about one thing that needs to be talked about before we can even start talking about broadheads and arrows and that is the tuning of the bow and so i kind of laid the groundwork for the tuning of the bow and every bow manufacturer might have a little bit of difference uh in in, in ways you can tweak it but ideally you have a compound bow and you have a rest okay and those are the most important things a lot of people will center uh do a center shot on their uh with the rest on their the way they set up their the the rest on their on their bow and um and then they'll take that once they've got that kind of center shot and sometimes that's on the burger button and some you know there's different manufacturers suggest different ways to get the bow close to what i would call zero or shooting a bullet hole in paper and then you do exactly that. You shoot the you shoot that arrow uh, through paper, and you look at your tear. Now, depending upon the tear, that's going to tell you which way you're going to either a 
make an adjustment on your wrist. Or in my situation, I shoot a Hoyt and I actually get, I actually do some twists on the cam, which gives you a little bit of cam lean, but that also, um, it also corrects that tear. Okay. Mm-hmm. You following yep. me? Yep, so, absolutely. so, uh, you know, I don't want to jump in and say someone's shooting a Matthews or a PSE or, or, or something else. Um, I, I'm not saying I know how to do that. You can figure that out through your local bow shop. Once you get that bow shooting that bullet hole, you're not done. And a lot of people stop there and it just drives me batty because all you're doing is you're getting that sucker close. Okay. Now, real quickly, I want to talk about arrows because shooting the correct arrow for your setup is also very important for being able to paper tune. Um, And I'm of the school of thought taught a lot by guys like Tim Gillingham and some of the the really good archers, um, competitive archers, that you don't want to be underspined, but you you can get away with a little overspine. And and let me clarify. I used to shoot a 400 spined arrow. Okay. I am a 27 inch draw. I got T-Rex arms. Mm-hmm. Okay. I shoot 65 to 70 pounds. I used to shoot a lot more weight and I realized, you know, I don't have to do that. I don't enjoy it. I enjoy shooting my bow a lot more at an easier poundage. So that's that for me, it's that 65 to 70 range. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the chart, I'm, I used to be right in the middle of the 400 spines. You know, you look at the, the arrow charts. I was smack dab in the 400. Well, that has changed in the last 10 years and I'm now on the very edge of that 400. So I have actually bumped up to a 340 spine. I'm shooting a stiffer spine. Arrow length, all of that stuff is similar, but I have bumped, jumped up to that next spine. Why? I did that because I still got good flight and I still shot a bullet hole. But what I did was I started putting more weight up front. Now I'm not a big FOC guy. Like I'm not trying to hit a magic number of 20% or, or whatever on FOC. Um, and I know we don't have enough time to go into FOC today, but, um, front of center, I'm putting a little bit more weight up front, which does a couple things. Number one, it's going to slow your setup. The heavier your arrow is your arrow and broadhead combination is it, the slower it shoots. Okay. So if everybody's after that 350, then they're going to shoot lighter. They're going to have to shoot a lighter arrow. And um, it's going to be faster. Their pins are going to be closer together, whatever the reason they want to hit that magic number. But in my opinion, in order to have momentum, there's two things that kill. One, well, there's more than two things. But the two things in an arrow that are important is kinetic energy and momentum. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely, 100%. Okay. Okay, so I'm not disagreeing with anything so far. Okay, good. And please, if if you do, jump in because this I'm just trying to lay the groundwork. So with my setup, I bumped up just a little bit to uh, a 340. I am shooting uh, victory archery arrows. I'm shooting uh, uh, the, the VAPs, and mm-hmm. um, which are the .166, and then I'm also shooting the .206s. Um, but I'm putting an. They have an outsert. So you on an arrow, you're either going to have an insert or an outsert. And what the outsert is is it has a little pin as you. Um, this all this stuff you know, but it has that little pin that goes in side the arrow, and then the collar goes over the outside. So there's actually two things that help secure that to the actual uh, arrow itself once you've cut it down. 
Let me let me add add one thing right there. You're dead on. Absolutely. Because I'm doing the exact same thing. And anybody who, who, who shoots big, big game, I'm talking guys that, you know, go for Cape Buffalo and elephants and things like that, wouldn't think of going uh, with anything but it, but an outsert type setup. Right. Um, so if you just scale that back down, obviously, like we talked before, a, a white-tailed deer is not that big of an animal uh, and shouldn't be that tough to, uh, to blow through. However, um, right, right there, the weakest, the weakest part of an arrow broadhead setup is right there at the very, very end. That's where the shoulder of the broadhead necks down. It's an 832 thread. It always has been. Um, and until, I don't know, I don't know what's going to change it, but it, it's always been an 832 unless you shoot deep six arrows. But um, it's industry standard across the board, and, and it has to be a certain size going into the arrow, and that is the weak part of anybody's broadhead. Um, so right. the outside right. The outsert that you're talking about helps protect that, and I'm uh, I'm not here to sell outserts. We don't make them, um, but I'm I'm telling you, it's it's the right thing. As speed increases, the more strength you need at the end of that arrow. Right, right, and and what I've done is I use a 70 grain outsert, so you can get them in different. I think there's I think Victory makes like a 30, maybe a 35, a 50, a 70. I even think they make a hundred. I am, or maybe a 90. I am shooting the 70. All of this because I didn't just choose a number out of the air, but because I took all of these and I built them and I tested them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so understand people listening. There's a lot of work that goes in just to get me to this darn point right here. Okay, and I know we love to go into our local bow shops, and um, we they have great knowledge and great. But just because the guy behind the counter shoots X Y Z doesn't mean that's the best for your setup unless your specs are identical and you know and and it flies great so i have a great time and i know you probably do too fred i like playing with setups i i enjoy trying different arrow configurations heck even going from a three vein to a four vein i now shoot a four vein um the four fletched uh i shouldn't say well it is a vein but a four fletched vein um combo that i used to shoot a three fletched vein and the reason i went to a four is just the stability of my whole setup okay so if as i go forward now i've got this whole thing on the set and then i i could go to 125 grain broadhead but i shoot 100 grains because i have shot 100 grains and so now i'm basically if you add that up it's like i'm shooting 100 and uh, i'm shooting 170 grains up front okay yeah so i could have broken that up with 125 grain and a 50 grain insert i'm i'm right about the same but i've got a little bit more weight up front um so okay i'm saying that to say now i'm shooting a bullet hole once i've got that bullet hole i'm going to go out to my range uh, I, I'm fortunate if I live on a little farm and I can shoot out to 120 yards if I wanted. Um, and I'm going to do what I call a backup tune. And for those of you people that haven't seen this, I'm sure there's a, some really good stuff on the Internet. You can Google it. There's probably some YouTube. Heck, we did a Wasp Tech Talk on this um, on Outback Outdoors yeah, about uh, dropping a vertical line. OK, and 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 starting at 20 and shooting down that line now of course if you're using the same pin your arrow is going to drop as your distance increases but you don't care about that all you're aiming at is that vertical line and please if you if you would take a plumb bob or a level or something make sure your line is truly vertical 
okay? Because we're, we're working against gravity here, and gravity is true. And don't do this on a windy day. Do it on a calm day, okay? And I'm going to shoot five, six, seven to, uh, every 10 yards, you know, as I back up. And I'm going to see wh- how my arrow walks. And what I mean by that is ide- ideally if I'm at 20 yards and my arrow is right on that line, and then as I back up to 30, 40, 50, I see it start to walk to the right. What that tells me is that I need to make a minute, and I cannot stress enough how minute these adjustments are, um, a minute adjustment to bring that. That's a tuning issue on my boat still. We haven't even started shooting broadheads. We're still shooting field points. And I'm going to bring that in so that when I shoot that 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, I'm straight up and down. My line is straight up and down, okay? Mm-hmm. And that, in my opinion, is your your – is ideal okay and then um what that puts me in because of the fact that i have shot through paper i'm i'm a bullet hole through paper i'm making a small minute adjustment i mean ever so slight it doesn't take much to get these things to fly now what i've done is i've done a pretty darn good job of tuning my bow okay mm-hmm. now i'm going to step out i'm going to set my little bow down and then i'm going to pick up my arrow and I'm going to take my uh, let's let's just go with an, a Havilon HV. And I'm going to take a little twelve dollar spinner that I bought on Amazon. Okay, and you it's a it's a cradle that you set your arrow down and you can just kind of support the cradle and then you spin it. And I'm watching that tip. Sometimes I'll take a a a, a box or something and put it right next to it if I need a reference point to see if that tip of that arrow is moving if I'm getting any wobble. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ideally, this is where stacking tolerances come in. And in my opinion, this is the key to, again, taking apart or setting aside the fact that now the bow is tuned. This is the part where people don't, they don't do this. And I, CJ Davis and I were just on a hunt in Nebraska from Montana. CJ is the president of Montana Deco, as you know. Mm -hmm. Good friends of both of ours. And CJ we were talking about this, and he said, I am blown away how many people have been hunting for 30 years and don't spin their arrows. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you something else. I, I see it all the time. Uh, they spin them in, in the palm of their hand or, you know, they try to spin them. And I, I can't even do it. Uh, but, you know, they'll, they'll try to use the palm of their hand to spin their arrows and say, oh, it's spinning straight or it's not. Um, and that, that's not good enough. What you're talking about, and I, always, I do exactly the same thing. I'll put a, a, a actually a, um, a target and I'll put a dot right where that arrow right. is, is touching. And then I can see, you know, on that target, if you will, as I spin it, if there's any wobble whatsoever. Right. And if you have a good uh, and I like a cardboard box because not only can I see where the tip is hitting, but it also gives me a little bit for my eyes uh, of a background to to take it out. Right. So we're on the same page there. Good. Another thing that works Um, good if you have it, if you have it around is a little piece of graph paper, you know, a little sometimes people make tablets with, you know, vertical lines on. And then now you can really see if, if anything's moving. Right. Why do we not want it to move? Well, that's where stacking tolerances come in. So. Uh, I guess I guess let's say this. Why would it wobble? Well, there's only a couple of reasons. And it's because if you have let's break down this arrow that we have in front of us now sitting on our spinner. We have the first thing we have is the tip. And we know how wasp mounts that tip to the ferrule of the broadhead. It's a pressed. Everything's lined up. Ideally, 
we're not going to have an issue there. And why I say ideally is because when it comes out of the package, it's been pressed, you guys quality check, all that stuff. After the ferrule, it goes into the insert or the outsert. Okay. Now, um, I have put brand new out of the box outserts on, and they are not square. I've had it happen. I'm just yep. telling you. Um, or the outsert goes in and doesn't make square. How, why does that happen? Well, there could be a couple of reasons. And the first one, I do like the outsert, especially with the pin that goes in the middle of the arrow, because that helps even if the arrow is not cut to true, true, it will help it. But I have an arrow saw. You use an arrow saw too. You go and you try and spin that thing as gentle as you can and get it as square as you can. And guess what? You, you cut it and it's not quite square because we're human and because we don't have a machine doing it. There's a tool made by, I'm going to have it in my hand right here. G5 Outdoors makes an ASD. It's called an arrow squaring device. And it's basically a uh, another smaller cradle that the arrow sits in with an abrasive end that you can, once you've cut your arrow down, you can set it there and you can rotate it back and forth and it literally trues the 90 degree cut or it makes it 90 degree of what you've just cut, okay? Mm -hmm. That's another step that I do, all right? Um, So am I going overboard? Yeah, probably, that's okay. Because what I want is out of my dozen arrows, I am frustrated with myself if 11 of them don't spin true. Where if you don't take these extra steps, I think you are building in what we call stacking tolerances, okay? And um, and and by building in stacking tolerances, what's, what a stacking tolerance is, is if you have one piece that has a, is a thousandth of an inch off, and the next piece that goes next to it is also a thousand of the inch inch thousand inch off of being square and you keep adding those two depending upon how they mate to each other you could be all of a sudden adding ten thousandths or four thousandths of unsquareness i'm not sure that's a word unsquareness Um, that's not a word (laughs) okay i just made it a word um so but but do you follow me there do you agree with that oh 100 percent okay i want want to add one more thing i mean the, the method that's used to make broadheads, uh, there's only a couple different ways that you can make the ferrule of a broadhead. Um, some of them are, are pressed um, powdered metal. It's called sintered uh, metal. Uh, it's a very, very fine powder. They put it in a mold and they press it. That would be like a one-piece solid broadhead or generally made that way. Um, Wasp is not made that way. Our broadheads are made on uh, either a, a high-speed uh, CNC machine, that's computerized machine, uh, very, very accurate. Uh, or uh, we actually have some uh, machines in our uh, our shop in Connecticut that are called that are called uh, screw machines. Either way, it does the same thing. If you can picture a, a lathe in your mind, something that's spinning very very fast, and as it's spinning, the tool comes in and and you know, for lack of a better word, it cuts it to the shape uh, that that you want it to be. Um, and th- that is that is accurate to point zero 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 one. Okay, so we know unless unless something really really goes haywire, that broadhead ferrule, you can't it can't it's spinning at seventeen hundred and fifty RPM. It can't be crooked. You can't make it an oblong shape when it's spinning that fast. If, you, if I'm saying that right, if you picture that in your mind, um, 
So it's no different if you, you know, like, you know, you make a baseball bat the exact same way, but baseball bats are wood and they can warp. Well, steel, aluminum, they don't warp. Um, so when you when you get a ferrule out of a CNC or, or, or a screw machine, uh, it's it's not bent. It's not crooked. It's not wobbly. Um, but, you know, at, at the same time, what you're saying is exactly true. And I know you're going to go here next is next thing you have is is the insert. And this is why I appreciate what you're saying. And I agree with you about the outsert end of it. Much more accurate. Right. Um, insert device or, 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 you know, a, a, a device to, to screw your broad it into, because again, I, I can't, I'm, I used to be happy with nine out of a dozen arrows because the inserts, and again, I'm not, I'm not disparaging anybody who makes inserts, but they're, they're, it's not great aluminum. It's not the best stuff in the world. You glue that in there. Um, and it, it's a, it's a weak spot. It's one of those stacking tolerances that, that you're referring to that can easily be off by far more than a thousandth of an inch. Right, exactly. So, in a situation where we are now mated broadhead, ferrule to outsert, insert to arrow. Okay, so we've added three systems, if you will, to make one system. Okay, so as I spin it, what I'm doing is I'm saying okay what are these how are these referenced to each other and are they spinning true and what you'll find is you will find wobble now there's guys that take and they'll pull that off and they'll press on the tip of that broadhead put it back on and that's okay i mean you can truly true a broadhead up that way i'm just not very good at it and so for me um i am either mixing and matching um, until I find the right combination. Um, I don't do that as much as I used to. I used to uh, work with another brand of Broadhead oh, 10, 12 years ago. and um, Before you and, saw the light, right? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and I had, I was lucky if I got two dozen arrows, if I got a set of six that were truly true. And that was horrible. I was horrible. So I had a lot of practice arrows, <laughs> but I didn't have very many hunting arrows. Now I take a dozen and uh, I have the uh, trust built in to when I do this little scenario and I take a dozen arrows and I pull out a package of broadheads. And if it spins true, I have no problem taking that arrow and putting it in my quiver and saying that's a hunting arrow. But you haven't shot that, Trevin. Well, I understand I haven't shot that yet. Let me get to that. Because I actually have shot. Um, but by the time I got to that point, I've already shot all of these arrows with a broadhead that spins true. The broadhead I'm going to be hunting with. Now, a lot of people have a problem with saying, well, that then I got to buy, uh, you know, four packs of three of extra of you know Havilon HVs or or and I even do it with the mechanicals uh, or jackknife or jackhammer or something like that, and I, I say well you should probably have that many anyway, but you don't have to. Um, if you'll when you order a pack of broadheads, I suggest you order one pack for strictly practice purposes. Now, here's the cool thing about wasp. <laughs> um, you're gonna have to really try to mess that tip up okay if you're shooting into a broadhead target 
that's you're not going to affect that tip. Now you will dull the blades, but that's okay because in a situation with once you get that thing, your three practice broadheads, let's say, and you don't have, let's be honest, you do not have a pattern or a uh, ability to see where your broadhead is hitting if you're just shooting one. You need to shoot multiple ones and and see how it's developing a pattern, okay? And ideally, uh, uh, unfortunately, some people, uh, they don't realize it, but they start shooting at the same spot, and then all of a sudden now they don't have any fletches left because their broadheads cut their fletches off. Well, that means you got good flight. Yeah, or, or, and, and, and I, I get this call once in a while. It's they've, they've now they got them dialed in so good that they start hitting one another. And it's bad enough you tear your fletching off, but right. when that stainless steel tip hits another stainless steel blade, the back of the blade that's in your target, one of them is going to have gonna a problem. Give. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's 300 feet so, so in stainless steel flying it's, through the air. It's easy to get those little small orange dots and put three of them out there, you know, because if you're high and left, you're and you're getting good flight, you would be high and left on all three in theory. I tell people um, that all the time. You know what the other thing it does subliminally, you're not always aiming at a, at the middle of something. Right. Uh, there's there's actually there's actually this is digressing, but there's actually a, a rule in soccer that the goalie is not allowed to wear a shirt that, that looks like a target because subliminally um, the mind will, will want you to kick the ball at the target, not away from the target. Right. Um, so you put the dots around or me, I, sh- I just shoot for the four corners of, of my block or my Reinhardt target. Um, it, you, a lot of them come with with those dots. Um, and you're right. You, you shoot three arrows at a time and you see, hey, I'm, I'm consistently high left. Now you know how to adjust and, and what to change. You don't have to always be at the middle. And by the way, you're chewing up your target a lot less uh, when you shoot at the corner. Right. And then when you're done and you got your pattern and you've got trust in that broadhead, it's very easy to replace those blades. It's a very, very simple thing. Now only now your three or your package of practice become hunting. So um, I want to encourage people, buy multiple packs, but once you got your practice, you can go ahead and shoot those. Now, I will say this. If you miss a target and you hit the dirt or the rocks or whatever, you need to start over. You need to take that, and it doesn't mean you have to replace things if it's a practice head. I mean, maybe you just took a little nick out of the blade. That's fine. It's still going to fly decent, but you still got to get it back to your spinner to make sure there wasn't any type of issue to the arrow, to the outsert, or to the to the ferrule of the broadhead. Because, again, that goes back to making sure we're shooting a truly straight projectile, and which takes me – to my next point. But before I go, um, I, I just, I, I'm trying to walk through this with people who are doing this. So once we've established this, now we're going to shoot these. And ideally, these are where the emails start coming in. Hey, Fred, I shot my field points and I'm two inches low at 40 yards. We get it all the time. And usually yep. what I find is, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to address I'm right or, or left, um, also, um, or high also here in a second, but the two inches low is that it warms my heart because the fact of the matter is we are, we're dealing with stacking tolerances, but we're also dealing with aerodynamics and it frustrates me to know in when somebody tells me these broadheads fly just like field points, it's yeah. in possible <laughs> if you know aerodynamics and you start to get into physics aerodynamics or uh 
friction from airflow acts like adding weight. What I mean by that is if I shoot something that has that that actually um, causes constriction of air, it's going to go lower. It's not going to fly as smoothly through the air. It's going to act like that's a heavier head. Okay. Now I'm sure there's a coefficient for that, and I'm not smart enough to to understand that. But in a situation where I'm 60 yards and my field points are hitting where I want them to hit, and then I put my broadheads on and I'm three inches low, um, I don't do anything. Now I'm very fortunate because I shoot a spot hog, Tommy hog, which or uh, or uh, actually I'm shooting a fast eddy now, but same same principle. I'm shooting a five pin sight but it's actually an adjustable sight, okay? Mm-hmm. So I adjust, I'm shooting my lowest pin as my as my movable pin, if you will. It's not a movable pin, but I can dial that, that bottom pin. Whatever my dial is on, that is exactly where that bottom pin uh, is going to hit, okay? So in a situation where I have it set on 60, that means I have a 20, a 30, a 40, a 50, and then my 60, Okay, and that's what I hunt with because I don't normally shoot something further than 60 unless I already have an arrow in it, then I'll dial it out. But I could take and dial my sight to 22 yards and shoot my bottom pin and it would hit 22 yards. Okay, so so with that being said, I might set my hunting sight, which is my five pin sight, I might set that to 62. And here's why, because now when I shoot 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, I'm right on with my broadheads. But I haven't, it's just a gang adjustment. I haven't made this, oh, I got to recite all my pins. And no, you don't. Um, and that is the advantage of having a little bit of a movable sight there. Um, but so I just want to impress upon people don't believe the marketing hype. It shoots just like your field points because even the jackknife at 80 yards hits low compared to my field points. Why? Because even though it's folded back and it's very aerodynamic and there's only two blades there, it's, there's not much of a profile, there's still enough air drag that that goes a little bit low. And that's okay because that's physics. Yeah. So yeah, you're, 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 you're so dead on with this stuff, Trevor. I, I can't. Like I said, I'm sitting here being quiet because I'm thinking, you know, we're we could be uh, we could be twins. We could be talking about the, this to anybody and, and saying the exact same thing. You, you've hit on several of the most common uh, problems with getting broadheads to fly, um, and I want to throw one more in there, and it, and it's it's torque of your hand on your bow, um, you know, your 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 bow arm, because if you're if any little thing you any another it's another stacking tolerance if you will any little thing you're doing wrong with canting your bow or dropping your arm a, a, a wee bit or whatever uh, with your field points is just compounded tenfold when you put a broadhead on there for all the reasons you you just discussed I mean it's there's wings on that thing right and and I'm with you 100 percent no one any show I go to whether it be consumer show dealer show whatever I hear it all the time. From other, you know, these broadheads shoot just like field tips. Or people will come up and ask me, "Do these broadheads shoot just like field tips?" And and the honest answer is no, no, they don't. Um, for all the reasons you just said, you you have to dial them in. You have to be willing to put in the time. Um, otherwise, well, and, and you're let disappointed. Me, let me jump in here because um, if everything is correct, um, and one thing I haven't hit on is spine and um, actually knock tuning. 
um, because uh, if for those of you who are maybe new to to the way arrows are built, there is a spine in there, and um, ideally, um, with a three fletched arrow, you have three positions you can adjust that to to find the best spine flex or or uh, the best position of where the spine needs to go to get the most consistent shot. Okay, I shoot a four fletch, so I actually have four positions I can check. So if I'm shooting my three shot group, for example, and I have two that are money and I have a flyer and I spin it again and it's still true. Guess what I do? I don't throw that out with the bathwater until I re I, I knock tune that to four different positions and shoot it until it either comes into the group or it doesn't. If it doesn't, then it doesn't make the cut. OK, mm-hmm. plain and simple. Okay, not rocket science. Again, I'm not expecting it to hit the same holes. You take a hooter shooter, and for those of you who don't know what a hooter shooter is, Spot Hog makes a machine that shoots your bow. It's as close to perfect as you can get, where once you get your bow tuned and you go and you put an arrow in it, you can literally hit the same hole with that field point. Okay, now you go and you take an arrow that's properly tuned and you put it on there. It will not hit the same hole, especially as yardage increases. Okay, and that's because of aerodynamics. Okay, but you so I'm trying to lay the groundwork for the fact that we we don't it's like trying to run a tractor, but you don't understand all the controls. Okay, if you if you if you if you don't know how to work the PTO, you're never going to disc a field. Okay, Um, or or a rototiller, you're never going to rototill the field. Um, uh, You've got to know the other controls that are at your disposal before you start throwing stuff out. Okay, Um, so my theory and again, I tried to get into this in this eight minute video and I don't go. I didn't wasn't able to get into all this because it would be too long. That's why I wanted to do this podcast with you, Fred, is in my opinion, people are missing the boat. They're they're either bailing out too quickly and not taking that next step or they're not setting themselves up to succeed because they haven't done the steps prior to. Um, And you can't you and I, Fred, cannot walk somebody through we don't have the time nor the energy to walk everybody through tuning their bow they have to reach out to their local bow shop and they have to do the best job they have and there's a ton of resources online youtube about tuning broad or tuning bows uh uh, walk back tune all of these different tuning uh ways of tuning um even there's a broad you can do broadhead tuning where you're trying to bring your fill points and your um, broadheads together by minute uh, adjustments and I and I've done that and it does work but if your spine's correct everything's correct you should be pretty consistent the only thing that will not be consistent is aerodynamics and you so we can't assume you can't adjust for aerodynamics by tuning. Yeah, tra- 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 actually- tell, tell me if you tell me if you agree with this because uh, I find it to be true uh, for me um, that when when people talk to me about um, you know trying to get their broadheads to 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 shoot straight and I, I agree with you I don't like the word broadhead tuning um, it's more about bow tuning and or shooter tuning uh, um, because yeah, I find that if if my broadheads are consistently let's say high right okay I I have a bow tuning issue that I need to address, whether that's move the rest or move the sight or, you know, you know, whatever I need to do. Um, but if, if I'm shooting broadheads and there's one's high right and the next one's low left, 
then I'm having a bad day. Um, as a shooter, I need tuned. You know, I, 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 need, I need to make changes in my form. Something's wrong. Or like you said, it could be arrow spine and, you know, some other things are, you know, but I'm either torquing, I'm dropping my arm. I'm, I got a crappy release all of a sudden, you know, some, something is going wrong in my basic shooting form. Um, that's causing my, my broadheads to suddenly be all around the bullseye instead of in one consistent spot. Do, do you agree with that? I totally agree with that, but I'm going to take it one step further. I think you have bow tuning, you have arrow tuning, and you have us tuning. People, yeah, good point. Human tuning. I yeah. do think that we have to take the time to tune the arrow. Um, I could take a rifle that was custom built that's $25,000 that the world champion long distance shooter shoots. Okay. There's nothing wrong with the equipment. I lay down behind it. And if I jerk the trigger, am I going to hit my mark? Yeah, no way. Yep. Yet we no way. expect with this handheld mechanical device flinging a stick with a pointy object on the end of it at over 250 to 280 to 300 feet per second that all of a sudden we are going to be on that level. We've added so many more factors than just me not being a professional shooter getting behind this rig. These bows will outshoot us every day of the week. Okay. A properly tuned bow will always outshoot. You You can never outshoot your bow. And I'm hoping, I never, I'm hoping if there's any new, new to the, to the sport guys out there listening to this, that we're not chasing them away because it's, oh no. it's not that hard. Um, it's actually, like you said earlier, it's it's the fun of it. It's 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 what makes it enjoyable. Well, this is a primitive. This is a primitive hunting. It is. If if it wasn't primitive hunting, I mean, that's the. the it's hard. That's yeah. what makes bow hunting so fun. Now we we have some things in our uh, disposal and at our fingertips that we can correct, that we can make better. That includes practice. That includes making sure our setup is tuned. All of those things go to that one 15 second moment in time that we sit all, and wait and dream about all year long, and we make the shot. Well, the last thing we want to do is we didn't put the work in. We did, and so now we're going to blame something. What do we blame? Ninety percent of the time, it's the freaking broadhead. The broadhead. <laughs> well, it's the scapegoat. This is, this is what here's 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 something I I say, and you, and you have to know the audience. So I'll, I'll, because because I don't know who's listening, I can say this with confidence. Um, if I if I've ever run into a a gun hunter who who wounded an animal and lost it, and let's face it, you, we're out there. It, it, it happens to everybody. But if a gun hunter wounds an animal and loses it, all 99% of the time they'll say, I guess I just made a bad shot. If a bow hunter wounds an animal and loses it, it's that no good broadhead that caused, <laughs> that caused yeah. the animal yeah. to get away. It, right. It's it's true like 100% of the time. Well, and how many times I can count misses where I had great opportunities, one in particular I'm thinking of, where – you know why I missed? It had nothing to do with the bow, had nothing to do with the broadhead, had nothing to do with the release, had nothing to do with the practice. It was the freaking clothes I was wearing. I never practiced in the clothes I was wearing. It was yeah. so cold and I was so bundled up and I had never, I didn't put the time in to shoot in those clothes and I screwed up. Yep. And and if I were to go, that dang broad, you know, so anyway, let's get off of that soapbox because I think we've beat that dead horse. But I, I think where we've come to now is we have all of these things that come to what we're talking about, which is the human 
interaction. And CJ and I had this conversation, and I think somebody needs to write an article, and that somebody might be me, about the difference mentally the moment you screw a broadhead on. I've been shooting for a lot of years. And when I draw back a field point, I feel different than when I draw back a broadhead. I don't know if it's the, even in practice, I don't know if it's the finality of a razor blade on the end of my stick of my arrow, (laughs) or if it's just the fact that I don't do it as much. But I do. There is a mental aspect of practicing with broadheads that you have to do it to get past. Because if you shoot three broadheads before you go out and hunt, um, I, I'm you're 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 going to have issues later on during your hunt. Okay, um, so you mentioned hand torque. Everything when you're especially with fixed blades when you're dealing with a uh, wings. Sorry, we got we got the uh, the, the five twenty train going by. Awesome. <laughs> Awesome. Um, But when you're dealing with something with wings, what happens? It's going to magnify your errors. It's the same thing when I shoot at 85 yards or 90 yards or 100 yards versus shooting at 20. Am I torquing the bow a little bit at 20? Probably. But I can sure tell I I torqued it when I'm shooting at 100 because it's magnified. Yeah. Well, you're going to do that with a broadhead. So, so yes. And again, we can't, you and I cannot sit and walk somebody through tuning their bow. And we also, on the flip side, we can't stop and show somebody how to shoot a shot correctly with a clean follow through, a good release. That's on them. But those are two important uh, things that sandwich the broadhead, the setting up and the, and the shooting that are are vital on both ends so yeah, cj and i have also discussed the the uh, the mental aspect of, of ter- putting a broadhead on the end of your arrow um and it's caused me in my practice sessions to shoot both i'll i'll shoot five arrow groups and i'll shoot um three broadheads and two field points yes um or two you know uh, uh field or, or yeah you, you know what i'm saying two two broadheads and three field points uh, just for that reason alone, to try to get myself over it, because you're exactly right. You put that broadhead on there, and it, it's just a little bit different. You're expecting something different. You're expecting to be perfect, um, and when it's not, it's very frustrating. So it's it's easy to, for the mental game to start messing with you. And 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 the mental game is so huge. Um, Joel Turner, are you familiar with Shot IQ? I, I know I know about okay. it. I'm not uh, okay. You know. I I've actually dealt with quite a bit of target panic, so I have immersed myself in the idea of a closed loop system when shooting and what a closed loop system in shooting means is when I'm at full draw I'm still in a closed loop I can stop that shot process at any time which means I'm in a hundred percent control of that shot process all of the time if I come and something's not right I can let down I cannot shoot that shot it didn't used to be that way. And unfortunately, in the world we live in, in bow hunting, there's a lot of people that have no idea. They have an open loop system. And when you draw that bow, you're going to shoot that arrow. And if you have that mentality, your practice sessions are going to look like crap. Excuse my French. And you will shoot poorly. If you have a closed loop system where you're in full control of your shot process, you can execute the shot every time. I still make bad shots when I'm practicing. 
but I know I made a bad shot and it doesn't affect me. So that ties into this whole thing of correct arrow, correct spine, correct uh, bow tuning. Now I have a great arrow broadhead combination. And then as I shoot down range, I'm able to make determinations of what adjustments then need to be made because I'm trusting my shooting. Yeah. You know, you know, when I, you know, when I struggle the most is if I, I, you know, bucks come and you get that perfect place to draw, he's going to walk behind that tree or that bush. I draw back and he stops Mm -hmm. and I'm waiting. Dating. It's like now, like you said, my, my mind's starting to take over. I'm starting to think, geez, Fred, how long can you hold this? What's what's going to happen next? What should I do? Should I let down? Should I wait? You know, <laughs> and then you really do start to panic. I always do the best in a situation of high adrenaline when it happens pretty quick. Yeah, I agree. Where I, where I do the worst is like if I see a buck coming from 60 yards away and he's meandering, taking his time, and he might take three minutes to get to me, I'm a frigging wreck by the time the <laughs> buck gets there. But if a buck steps out and walks into my shooting lane and I can get drawn on him, he's dead. <laughs> we could do another we could do another podcast on why this is yeah. so much fun. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> exactly. But uh, anyway, that's neither here nor there. One of the things I do is I practice long holds. I also, I do some competitions called like alpha bow hunting. Um, alpha bow hunting, it's kind of like a, uh, it's not quite like a CrossFit. It, it's it's more like a shooting competition under duress. And um, you there are some, some different unique shots throughout the 3D course, because there's a 3D course and then there's a timed course. And I won't get into that. If you want to check it out, go to alphabowhunting.com or, or go on YouTube. And uh, we, you can see the competitions there. They're a lot of fun. But it puts me in a position to where I understand my true um, capacity of if it's a minute most likely, doesn't matter if the buck does step out. If I've held for over a minute, um, I'm I'm probably going to screw the shot up. So I understand my limitations, but I don't have a lack of confidence of having to hold my bow for longer periods of time because I've done it in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so understanding your limitation is good. Um, um, I, I don't, I don't want to get too broad on this because now we're starting to get off into, uh, true archery techniques and stuff like that. Getting back to the broadheads, I think as we've developed our patterns and then we are able to make the adjustments and whether that's really fine, minute adjustments with our rest or knock tuning, simple knock tuning where we're literally referencing the knock in a different location, reshooting that and finding out, okay, now it's coming back into that group. Um, that's where we start seeing um, seeing consistency. And once we get away from this idea that, well, it's not hitting where my field points are hitting, um, and we understand why it's not hitting, that it will never hit where your field points, if you're truly shooting good, like, again, going back to a hooter shooter where we take the human factor out of it completely, a hooter shooter will not put a broadhead in the same hole as a field point. It can't. It's impossible as you stretch distance. You might be able to get away with it at 20 yards, but at 30, 40, 50, and 60, um, the consistency of flight should be there, but you're not going to hit the same hole as a field point because it's aerodynamically impossible. So once we understand that, and then we can say, okay, I'm shooting a, uh, it's the same thing if I was shooting a hundred grain head versus 150 grain head. 
would I be silly to ex- even with a field point? Would I be silly to expect that 150 grain head to be lower than my 100 grain head on the target? Yes, that's of course that's going to be there. So once we understand that, then we can make that adjustment and and start to realize why uh, at 60 yards I'm three inches low. Um, and then again, human factor. Uh, so I guess I guess my 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 whole point of this is. Before we start pointing fingers at different things, we need to make sure that every one of our uh, uh, steps has been done properly and then and then go uh, then we have to make a decision. And there's times that I this this arrow and broadhead combination will not work. I do not I, it, w- it will not make my quiver. Mm-hmm. And that's a choice I make. Because when I'm uh, out hunting, I only have that one opportunity, um, and I don't want to, because of my lack of diligence, um, create a, a bad situation where I sit and wonder, was that me? Was that the broadhead arrow combination? Was that uh, a poor choice of I shouldn't have took it, taken that shot at that time? I don't want those factors. I want to ha- take care of all the important details before I even go out in the field. And it's fun. Let's be honest, Fred. You and I, we've talked about it before. It's I like tinkering because I learn a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And there's 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 so many other factors that you know we haven't even talked about. It's like um I, I know I'm pretty particular with my bow case. Um and I don't I don't just throw my bow in the backseat of my truck. It's in the case. Uh and I'm particular about how I pack it in the case. Um, because, you know, let's say you're traveling, not even flying, maybe in your pickup truck and the thing's bouncing around back there. Um, you know, things can go wrong. Um, you, the top of your case pressing against your quiver, if you still have it on your bow, um, can, you know, get, get that slight little bend in the arrow that's going to come back. The arrows are are tremendous today compared to what they used to be. Right. Uh, but there's a lot of things. And I, I also counsel people all the time to say, well, you know, where, where do you, where do you store your bow? When you're not shooting guys like you and I, we shoot a lot. I mean, I shoot 52 weeks a year and I know you do too, but not everybody does that. So where's your bow when it's not, when you're not shooting is in the garage. Is it hanging on the wall in the garage where it's, where it's, you know, 120 degrees in the summer and and, uh, below zero in the winter. Um, And again, strings and bows and arrows, everything is so much better today than they used to be. But no one, you you know, you can't expect um, the the forces of nature to remain equal uh, when you when you experience temperature extremes and, um, you know, whatever else might be affecting where where your bows located. Um, And I I think, too, and this is this is something I'm adamant about. Uh, I do not start my my summer practice. I mean, I practice much harder in the summer, like 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 you should, like everybody else does. Um, but my bow goes to, to my shop, not, not me, not Fred, um, because I don't trust me. I, I go to, I go to a guy who does this every day for a living and he's one of the best in the country as far as I'm concerned. Um, and he tunes my bow and I got to tell you, it is rare. It is rare, rare, rare that he doesn't make some kind of small minor adjustment here or there or somewhere. Um, and that's just a fact of it. Uh, to get me and, back on target, you know? Yeah. And, and, um, when I show up to camp, one of the first things I do, even if I drove and it was in the truck with me, seat belted next to me like my like it was my wife, <laughs> I pull it out and I shoot because where I hunt, I could be at 12,000 feet 
or I could be at 600 feet of elevation. That's right. And and it affects your flight. And so I might make a small gang adjustment. But I find out that I probably retune my bow three times a year. Mm-hmm. Just because of the change in, and I agree, strings are great, but strings and cables stretch. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you have a little something here, a little something there. And um, so the other thing that I have learned in the last 10 years, probably the most important thing is uh, I would shoot, 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 shoot. And I would shoot less during hunting season than I did the rest of the year. And I got to thinking, I'm like, that's stupid. Why am I doing that? I'm actually hunting now. Shouldn't I stay polished? So I actually get and I've created some games um, you've you've played horse or 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 pig, you know, with the basketball. Yeah. I get out there. I have a game I call Buck, and I get some other guys from camp, and we go out there, and it's call your shot and different from kneeling, from you know, all these different things that you have to. And all I'm doing is shooting my bow. Yeah. I'm shooting my bow, and I'm creating that oneness, as Uncle Teddy says. Uh, you know, and 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 so by doing that, I maintain uh, my confidence. I maintain my consistency, um, but I'm also co- I'm I'm connected. Um, and I, it sounds a little uh, new ageish, I know, but I'm connected with that bow. So then, when I have an issue. And I don't just shoot field points. I also shoot broadheads in camp, you know, so that means I have some practice broadheads. Um, because if I have an issue, I, here comes the train. If yeah. I have an issue, <laughs> I want to know about it and I want to be able to correct it. And sometimes on a hunt, that might mean making a small gang adjustment just to maintain consistent flight. And then when you get back, to the house or back to you know to to your your normal routine then you take it to your 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 true bow technician the guy that you trust and i like you do the same thing i take my bow to somebody who does it every day and here's why and it's a totally selfish reason i love working on my bow and i cut my own arrows i build my own arrows all that stuff but i thought about uh, you remember the transition that we made back in the day where you got a bow press and then it went to parallel limb design and it just keeps changing every year. There's like a new adapter for the new bows, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I quit when it went to the super parallel limb design yeah. because, and I still have that old Apple press. Um, but I quit because what I found out is I became the guy who worked on all my buddies bows. Yeah. <laughs> so, so instead what I do is I take it to somebody and I'm there with them and they're, and I'm like, well, I think you need to do this. And they're like, well, I think I need to do this. And, you know, so we're bouncing ideas around and, and, and then boom, I'm shooting it through paper. And, but I'm right there the whole time. I'm just allowing them to help me get it to where I can. So then I can come on my own and make my small, minute details, uh, adjustments, if you will. Um, so I, I'm, I'm like you, I don't, I'm a busy guy and, um, it's like I know how to change my own oil very easily, but I don't ever do it because to me it's not worth my time. It's yeah, easier for me yeah. to take it into Grease Monkey or Jiffy Lube or wherever, have them change the darn thing, and then be on my, on the road because I got other things I can be doing with my time, um, even you know, though you know, I, I enjoy to, working on my trucks. Let, let me interrupt a second. I, I want to throw one other thing, and we were talking about practicing and – uh, and how you do it and doing it you know, during a hunt, before a hunt, and so on and so forth. There's another thing that I, I very, very – I've talked to so many experienced hunters and, and very few of them do this is practice shooting 
sitting down <laughs> because so often, you know, you end up in a ground blind or even in your tree stand. How many times do you think, man, I'm going to sit down and rest my back a little bit. And the next thing you know, there's a buck beside you at 20 yards. You didn't see him. You didn't hear him. And you're going to have to shoot sitting down. And you haven't done it once all summer long. Right. But now right. you're expecting to make that perfect shot uh, from a sitting position. Um, and it's different. It's, it's a different draw. It's a different, you got to make sure, you know, your leg's not in the way, that the limb's not going to smack your knee or something like that. Um, so I, I just want to point that out. There are very, very few people who uh, practice sitting down, and they should. If well, and, they're going to be in that situation. And I go a step further. Um, and, the, uh, and this is part of the alpha bow hunting methodology. Um, once a week, I go out, and usually during the summer, I go out and I shoot at 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, and 80 yards. One arrow, only one arrow, okay? And it doesn't matter the conditions. It doesn't matter if it's windy. It doesn't matter if it's rainy, whatever that conditions are at that time. What I'm looking for is my effective range on that day, okay? And this goes into your seated thing. I do it kneeling, I do it seated, and I do it standing. Not all at the same time. Yeah. But I shoot all of these different things because here's the ex- gr- prime example. If an elk's effective kill zone is 16 inches by 12 inches, let's just say that's the size of their lungs. And I'm just pulling that out of the air, but bear with me. If we take out the shoulder, we end up with an area because you don't want to shoot an elk in the shoulder. We ended up with an area that's about nine inches. When you start taking off the bottom and the, you know, and we try and make a round circle, that would be the best place to shoot that elk. You end up with a circle about nine inches. Let's take a mule deer. A mule deer is going to, you're going to be right at about seven inches. An antelope, uh, you're going to probably be right at around six inches. Uh, I'd say a whitetail, big whitetail, probably seven inches, maybe a smaller, like South Texas whitetail, maybe six inches. Okay. But let's, let's just combine all that. And let's say seven inches is the magic number. And I make a circle with a small orange dot in the middle and I shoot at 21 arrow. So that means it is three and a half inches to the edge from every of that, you know, all the way around of that little orange circle. And that is an effective shot if I make it in the circle. And I shoot one arrow and then 30 and then 40 and then 50. The, the, the yardage that I get out of that effective circle, that kill zone, if you will, tells me that's outside of my effective range. I allow myself one more shot to see if it was just me or if it if that's truly my effective range if i hit it i keep going back and i have gotten back to 120 yards interesting cuz i i do i do the exact same thing only opposite i'll, I'll take oh my, i see i see uh, i see yeah very first shot of the day is going to be at 60 yards and if i'm not if i'm not in that magic 7 inch circle pie plate size let's say um, then I'm moving back to 55 and then to 50 and right. then to 45. Right. Uh, it does a couple things for me. Um, I hunt mostly in, in, in the eastern part of the United States. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't get to take a 60 yard shot. Not sure I would anyway, but I, right, you know, sure. so that's not the thing to do. But if I'm banging them at 60, by the time I get to 20, 
man, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm on top of the world. Right, right, right. And right. if I'm not, well, if I don't start banging them until I'm at 40, then I know, hey, you know, I, I, I got some work to do and maybe I need to get back out tomorrow during the season and, and hit and shoot a couple more. Uh, but at least I know that if I can hit it at 60, I should be able to hit it at 20. Not yeah. saying I always do. Right, but. exactly. And I and when I said I shoot at 120, I'm saying that there's on a still calm day, me standing, there's been times I've shot 120 and I've hit it. Yeah. That does not make mean that's my effective range. Because the next day, let's say, or the next time I shoot, now I'm shooting a kneeling shot and I have a 20 mile per hour crosswind. And guess what? 40 is my max. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so what I've just done Again, I know we're getting a little bit over just broadheads, but this is important for for bow hunters in general. What I've just done is created a limit for myself with conditions. So if I'm in a spot and stock scenario with 20 mile per hour winds shooting from my knees, I have can reference back to, look, I need to get within 40 yards. Okay. Um, would I ever take a shot at an animal at 120? Never, ever, ever, ever. Understand, I, uh, please, I can't say that enough. But in that one day, boy, I was shooting good. That doesn't mean that for the rest of my life, 120 yards is my effective range. What that means is at that on that day, I was hitting seven inches at 120 yards. But when I come back, I'm finding out where that uh, now I'm seated. Now I'm sitting and I like to sit on a tire. Here's why. I sit on a tire instead of a chair because a tire gives and I have to engage my core. Okay. So I turn the tire up on its end and I sit on it and it's a little bouncy, right? Yeah. I never and thought of that. I pull, but I engage my core. And a lot of times when you're sitting in a whitetail stand, yeah, you have a good platform, but like you said, yes, you're still tight. Maybe it's cold. You're engaging more muscles. Um, but what I also find out is in that position, my effective range might be 50 yards or 30 yards. It might be 20 yards on a day where I have a pretty strong crosswind. So what I'm doing is I'm putting myself in positions to match the scenario that I'm in hunting. And I don't have to think, oh, should I take that shot? I already know whether I should take that shot or not. Because the last thing we want to do is release an arrow and hope it hits its mark. We want to release an arrow and 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 be confident that we've done everything we can. We owe it to the animal to put them down quickly and as ethically as possible. Um, and so for me, it's a fun little game. As you can tell, I like to play little games because I get bored really easy. And so whether it's in camp playing around, just shooting my bow, I'm always creating these little games. Or whether I'm testing myself during the summer to find my effective range. I think that's important. All right. You know, Chuck, we, we, we really need to do this like once a month or something mm -hmm. like that because mm -hmm. we hit on about a thousand topics here today. I, <laughs> I totally agree. And I'm up for that because I think as time goes on, I think, why don't we do this? Why don't we pull some of these emails we're getting that might be unique or or thought provoking? And let's set those aside and let's try and get back together once a month. And um, heck, we can call it the, the you know, the, and heck, we would love for listeners to send in questions. Maybe this would be an opportunity also for Fred and I to come together and say, hey, we got this question. And this is this is going to take a little bit of diving into, but to answer this question. And um, but I think it would be a good platform on on the, you know, on the Inspired Wild podcast to to get a little more technical, because let's be honest, this whole podcast was put together 
to inspire people to find their wild and embrace it. I mean, we want to inspire people to go out and do what we do because it's not it's not that difficult. But there's also a lot of work on the back end that we do in order to be successful. Um, and so by being a little more technical, I think that there's some some of these podcasts people will actually actually gravitate to um, answering some of these questions. So I, I, I'm all for it. Let's uh, let's let's kind of uh, wrap this one up and we'll look toward maybe uh, one after late November when I, I can share some of the excitement of uh, uh, the Midwest uh, whitetail woods you can tell us what's going on in, in Pennsylvania and some of that eastern stuff you're hunting and and uh, and then maybe get technical again and, and break down some other questions you know I, I totally agree and I, I and like you said anybody that's listening out there if you have questions um, you know just send them in to wasparchery.com I'll get them Trevor will get them you know somebody will get them yeah, uh, Instagram, even IG. Yeah. Send those. You can go on the IG page. Go up there. Send us a message. Um, I'm on there. I know uh, some of the other people from Wasp are on there. We can field those questions. If we don't get them, they'll. I guarantee they'll get. They'll either get sent to Fred or me, and um, and then we can maybe uh, start to navigate some of these questions. I I really would like to have the ability to help somebody through an issue that we can really help them through. But if somebody's being general and says, hey, my broadheads aren't flying, we don't know what they did to tune their bow. We don't know right. what their setup is. We don't know how they're shooting, what they're – I mean, there's so many parameters that and information that – data, really, that we need in order to be able to – you and I to start to, to break down and say, oh, here's where your issue is. And it can be frustrating for those of you listening that that says I can't get a freaking broadhead to fly. I know it's frustrating. I've been there. <laughs> but let me let yeah. me let me say this: with Wasp, the one thing you can be sure of is consistency of product. And I've shot other broadheads, and there's some great broadheads out there. Okay, there's some really good broadheads out there. But I've also shot some broadheads where the consistency of material and manufacturing is not there. You will not have that with Wasp. Yeah, I, th- I think, I, I again, it's, it's something I've said repeatedly. is just pick up your broadhead and, and look at it. Look at you, – you can tell. You don't have to be an engineer to tell a, a quality product when you when you see it and you, and you look at it you hold it in your hand. You can tell – um, that the materials are solid. Um, when you start, when, when broadheads have to be assembled um, with tiny little screws and and little pins inside of them and stuff like that, that that to me is is an issue. That's that's a problem waiting to happen. Um, and I, when I first got involved with this, uh, when the Weavers first bought the Wasp business about eight years ago. Um, I, I was work, I was, well, I was engineer for, uh, uh, Hershey foods for, uh, candy manufacturing. Uh, a guy said, come with me. Let's take a look at this. Cause he's in the construction business. Uh, and he admits he's not, you know, he's not an engineer. I went, I looked at this product and I had already known about Wast and shot it. But when I saw how it was made and I saw the people that were making it and how much they get, they're still, they're still there. Uh, it's the same people when we bought the business. And um, I, I just I knew I said, guy, this this is a truly quality product. This is this is top of the line stuff, um, and it's not because I I, I refuse. I you know I, I was 
basically grew up um, in the Hershey organization. And this is not a Hershey commercial, but, you know, I learned about quality and I learned uh, how not to cut corners and not take chances on any product that people have to eat. Um, you know, and I, I transferred that over to this, this broadhead business. Uh, and we don't, we never cut corners. We would never release anything that's not ready. Um, and we're, you know, we're, we're bound and determined to continue to make the highest quality product that, that we can make. So I, I want, you know, make sure your listeners, my listeners are, 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 can rest assured with that fact that if they're having issues, if something does break or something's wrong, again, I, I need to know about that. I need to hear about it. Yes, I think that's important. Well, Fred, it's been great. It's been a, a good talk, and I know you and I will have many more like this uh, as as the years develop, and as uh, I know Wasp is consistently coming out with this, and you've got some stuff that I've seen that uh, we're not even going to touch on. It's so top secret, but I'm excited about what's coming down the pipe. I've got some new stuff I'm going to play with this fall, um, and uh, you know, to be honest, this we've needed to do this for a while. And so I'm glad we finally did, and um, this will be great. And I'll, uh, unless you have any other kind words, we'll close this baby out. No, all I want to wish you is, is more success in your uh, your fall hunting. I know you got a couple big trips coming up. I think I'm done uh, as far as trips go. Um, I got back from Greenland muskox hunting a couple weeks back, um, which which was great. Um, guy, the owner, and I went, and a good friend of ours. Uh, we all three got muskox, which was which was a fantastic, unique kind of a hunt. Um, but then then they then they talked us into caribou hunting while we were there, and that almost killed me. <laughs> I'm too I'm too old to climb steep mountains anymore. So yeah, uh, that, that was an interesting trip, but I'm I'm still somewhat re- recuperating from it. Um, yeah, that was that was a tough one. But um, so now I'm just you know I'm easing in back into whitetail hunting. We'll be in uh, we'll be in New York State every weekend and. Uh, up at guy's cabin and uh trying to knock down some uh, some decent bucks so. awesome awesome well thanks again and uh we'll sign off here uh as always those of you listening man go out find find what inspires you find what stirs your soul and embrace it god bless and we will see you down the trail <laughs>